Welcome to Royally Screwed, my name is Chris Shearer, and it's my honor to take you on a tour through some of history's greatest, worst, and bizarre rulers. On this week's episode, we're looking at a relatively short but wild period within the history of the Roman Empire. As you may or may not know, Rome was constantly trying to struggle to keep its act together since Emperor Augustus passed away. Augustus, aka the First Emperor. And I'm sure there are people who would argue that the empire was struggling even before then. Well, for much of the 3rd century CE, Rome was really in a rocky place, which we'll get more into with the background history lesson. But we are specifically looking into a period of time when Rome was briefly split into three separate empires. There was the Roman Empire, which still held much of the land it had before, the Gallic Empire in the west, which controlled Britain, most of Gaul, and the Iberian Peninsula, and the Palmyrene Empire, which controlled Egypt, eastern Turkey, and the eastern coast of the Mediterranean Sea. I want this episode to specifically focus on Queen Zenobia of the Palmyrene Empire, but we'll definitely have to look at what the situation was like out west with the Gallic Empire as well. This entire period, lasting from about the mid-230s to the mid-280s, is known historically as the Crisis of the 3rd Century. However, it was really only a crisis on a grander scale for the fate of Rome. We'll be taking a closer look at how things were going with this broken-up Roman world, and you might be surprised that some things were actually going much better for some people in this situation. But I'm getting ahead of myself. There's a lot of lead-up we need to get through before I even start talking about Zenobia and her contemporaries. So, without further ado, let's begin the story. We're going back in time to Rome on the brink of crisis in the 3rd century CE in From Gaul to Paul, Myra. <laughs> in the background history lesson, we're going to tackle a couple different topics. While we'll definitely be getting into the early days of the crisis of the 3rd century that will lead to the breaking of Rome, first I want to look at how Rome started its expansion east into the lands Zenobia would eventually rule over. It all goes back to before the days of the Roman Empire in the late stages of the Roman Republic. Enter General Gnaeus Pompeius Magnus, aka Pompey the Great. I covered Pompey way back in episode 15 of this show. But for those of you who don't know, he was one of Rome's greatest military leaders of the 1st century BCE. He was also vaguely friends with, then business partners, and then dreaded rival to Julius Caesar. In the 60s BCE, Pompey was engaged in war against the Seleucid Empire, a remnant of the empire of Alexander the Great that controlled lands stretching from modern-day Syria through Iran and into Afghanistan. In 64 BCE, Pompey defeated the Seleucid king Antiochus XIII and deposed his successor. Pompey then annexed some of that land into the Roman province of Syria. During the early days of the empire, Roman Syria was an important border province against the new neighbors to the east, the Parthian Persian Empire. Roman Syria's power was further increased when Emperor Augustus deposed the Herodian dynasty, the kings who ruled over Roman Judea. The Syrian governor would now also rule over those lands. Eventually, Judea would come to be renamed Syria-Palestina. Let's now jump forward to the 3rd century CE. Rome was really in a mess. 
In 235, Emperor Alexander Severus was assassinated. He had handled things poorly, or at least they were perceived poorly by the troops he commanded, with Germanic troops invading Rome from the north. Alexander had hoped to end things quickly so he could focus on the Sassanid Empire in the east, yet another Persian Empire who replaced the Parthians. Severus was assassinated by his own troops, and a general named Maximus Thrax, great name by the way, was proclaimed emperor in his place by Thrax's troops. Maximus would be the first in a long list of rulers known as the Barracks Emperors. Barracks Emperor is a term that has come to describe most of the rulers during the crisis of the 3rd century, due to the fact that these were mostly men who came from the military without much in the way of a political background or even high social standing. From 235 to 285, there would be 28 emperors. Some ruled for only a few months before being deposed and replaced with another military leader. For a good idea of how wild that is, from 14 CE to 68 CE, there were only four emperors who ruled. The rules of succession were always a little bit unclear. Okay, a lot of bit unclear when it came to Rome. So, all of this was technically legal in the eyes of the law. It just made for a really poor system. But a wild mess of a succession system was not the only problem that would go on to lead to the secession of the Gallic and Palmyrene empires. For over a decade, sources are unclear on an exact start and end date, Rome was ravaged by the Plague of Cyprian. The plague gets its modern name from St. Cyprian of Carthage, a Christian bishop who lived during the plague and wrote a lot about it. There's also no clear consensus on what the disease that plagued Rome was. Some say smallpox, while others are saying it was a virus of similar makeup to Ebola, if not Ebola itself. There are some sources that say the plague killed as many as 5,000 people per day. I found an article from January of 2021 reporting over 4,000 people dying in a single day from COVID, if that gives you any perspective on what we're dealing with. The city of Alexandria, Egypt lost over half its population during the plague's run, though some of that loss was definitely from people fleeing the city. So, with a virus ravaging the empire and a series of mostly inept military leaders ruling Rome, it shouldn't be too surprising that Rome's neighbors were really taking advantage of the situation to fight back against what was once the greatest power of Europe in Western Asia. And it would be a particularly fierce loss by the Romans against one of its neighbors that will get the ball rolling on the rest of our story. Emperor Valerian had been captured by the Sassanids. This was the first time in history that this had ever happened, a Roman emperor being taken as a prisoner of war. Valerian had been doing a surprisingly decent job for the crisis of 3rd century by maintaining his throne for 7 years. Very early on, Valerian had decided to raise his son Gallienus as his co-ruler. This wasn't particularly out of left field for the age, and it showed a bit of smart thinking on Valerian's part that Rome had gotten a bit too big for just one person to rule. So Gallienus was mostly in charge of things back home in Italy, while also fighting against Germanic tribes to the north, while Valerian tried to hold Roman ground out east against the Sassanids. Uh-oh. It's also fairly unknown what happened to Valerian after he was kidnapped in 260 CE. 
Some sources say he was held as a prisoner for quite some time, if not several years, before dying or being killed by his captors. There are also stories about the Sassanid king using him as a footstool. A single, rather gruesome story even says that Valerian was killed when he was forced to swallow molten gold, which, if true, might have been a callback to the supposed death of Roman statesman and military leader Marcus Licinius Crassus, the richest man in Rome and possibly all of human history. Anyway, with Valerian gone, Gallienus was now the sole ruler of Rome. However, the eastern provinces were now without the eastern power of Rome and fighting against the Persians. Luckily, there was still a combined force of remaining Roman soldiers in the armies of Odonathus, ruler of Palmyra. Gee, I wonder if he'll be important later. This combined force managed to push back the Persian army and maintain the eastern provinces of Rome. Unfortunately for Gallienus, the power vacuum left by his father's capture led to one of the empire's treasury advisors, Macrianus Major, to declare his sons as the new co-emperors of Rome. This did not go over very well outside of the Eastern Roman legions. Even Odonathus immediately responded poorly and fought back against Macrianus's son Quietus. Meanwhile, Macrianus Major and his son, Macrianus Minor, decided to lead a military campaign back west to get rid of Gallienus. This campaign spectacularly failed, leading to the death of both Macrianuses. It was not much later that Odonathus managed to back Quietus into a corner, killing both the usurper and his allies. With the usurpers out of the way, Odonathus had established himself as the most powerful man in the eastern portion of the Roman Empire. He had even helped lead military campaigns to take back the Roman provinces of Osroene and Mesopotamia, both of which corresponded to land in Syria and Iraq. Gallienus took note of this and actually decided to heap praises and titles upon the Palmyrene ruler. In a sense, Odonathus was now the ruler of the eastern third or so of the Roman Empire, with full approval from the emperor no less. But before we can go on to talk more about what was happening in Palmyra, let's go to the opposite side of the Roman Empire to talk about the crazy situation happening in Gaul. Marcus Cassianius Latinius Posthumus, more commonly just known by his cognomen Posthumus, was a Roman commander who was probably of Germanic origins. Not much is known of his early life besides the fact that he joined the Roman military and worked his way up through the ranks. By the time we catch up with him, he was also made governor of both German provinces of Rome, Germania Superior and Germania Inferior. And now to connect him to the rest of the story. When Macrianus and his sons started causing trouble for Gallienus, the emperor left command of the Roman military along the northern border of the Rhine River to his son, Saloninus, and several other military leaders, including Posthumus. The people of Gaul, as well as the other western provinces that weren't Italy, had long felt they were not given proper attention and respect from the central Roman government. With Gallienus now off defending the city of Rome from usurpers, the people of Gaul felt especially neglected due to the invasion of Germanic tribes such as the Franks. So when Posthumus led a successful campaign to push the Franks out of Gaul in 260, the soldiers under his command quickly stepped in to hail him as Caesar, naming him as their new emperor. 
However, there was that whole awkward thing about the Emperor's actual son still very much holding command and being in the region. With signs pointing to Posthumus gathering more support and leading a revolution against Rome, Saloninus and the military leaders still loyal to him fortified themselves in what is now the modern-day city of Cologne, Germany. Well, it didn't take long for Posthumus to lay siege to Cologne and kill the imperial heir. He was now the most important and powerful man west of the Alps. Surprisingly, Gallienus did not immediately step in to avenge the death of his son and squash the Western Rebellion. Okay, to be fair to him, he was still dealing with the whole Macrianus debacle. So instead, as soon as all that was said and done, the Emperor entrusted the handling of Posthumus to Ariolus, another military commander who had helped take on the army of the Macrianus clan. Unfortunately, Ariolus was never able to defeat the newly proclaimed leader of Gaul. So, in 263 CE, Gallienus finally took matters into his own hands, and was forced to retreat after suffering an injury in battle. Posthumus's Gallic Empire was a very interesting nation. It was essentially the exact same thing as the Roman Empire, just centered out of Gaul instead of Italy. Its capital was either in Cologne or the modern-day city of Trier, Germany. Soon after the nation was formed, Britain and Hispania also decided to get in on the action. Posthumus helped set up new institutions in his nation to mirror those of Rome. There was a senate, consuls, and a praetorian guard. During the rest of his life, which unfortunately wasn't all that much longer, Posthumus would be elected consul five times. In 269, Posthumus was finally challenged as emperor by one of his former commanders. A man named Lilianus was declared emperor by his own branch of the military and set up a base of operations in modern-day Mainz, Germany. Posthumus quickly jumped into action and defeated Lilianus's army, retaking Mainz. But the seeds of discord had been sown. Soon afterwards, Posthumus was killed in a mutiny by his soldiers. The political situation remained rocky in the Gallic Empire with a couple short-lived leaders. In response to the situation, Hispania left the empire to rejoin Rome. Things were looking very perilous for Gaul. So let's put a pin in the western side of things for now and jump back east. Back east in Palmyra by 263, Odonathus had decided to take on the title King of Kings and had also named his son Hiron as co-King of Kings. This was very significant because that title had originated with the ancient kings of Middle Eastern empires dating back thousands of years. It had also been used by Persian rulers as well. Considering Odonathus had fought back the Sassanid Persians from Roman land and even pushed his army into their capital, I guess it seemed fairly fitting. This truly marked the tonal shift that was now going on between Eastern and Western Rome. On paper, the eastern provinces were very much still a part of the empire. In day-to-day -day life, though, it was becoming more apparent that Odonathus was the man in charge, and he was ruling over something closer to a client kingdom rather than several provinces in a larger empire. So how did Emperor Gallienus seem to feel about all this? Well, from the seat of power in Rome, this wasn't all that big of a deal. So what if Odonathus was calling himself King of Kings? He wasn't the Emperor of Rome. 
And besides, Roman power had been split up before dating back to the very early days of the empire when Emperor Augustus entrusted power of half the empire first to his good friend Agrippa and then his stepson Tiberius. This was just a situation that was making the headache of ruling a massive empire a little bit easier. Besides, Odonathus still allowed Gallienus to have some form of sway within his new Syrian kingdom. He accepted that the emperor could appoint provincial governors. However, all the more local officials in his new kingdom were Syrians. And if any Roman officials not appointed by Gallienus decide to speak up against Odonathus, well, they wouldn't be speaking out much longer. So, this system of split rule seemed to be going rather peacefully for several years. Even if the split was becoming more apparent, at least it wasn't a full-scale violent revolt like what was happening back out west with Posthumus and the Gallic Empire. Unfortunately, all the peaceful goodwill would come to an end when Odonathus and his son Hyrin were both assassinated. There are several theories about his assassination, but we'll probably never know for sure who killed the Palmyrene king or for what purpose. All that matters is what would happen next. Because you see, on paper Odonathus wasn't an emperor or king, he was just a guy entrusted with quite a bit of power. That meant upon his death, Gallienus would need to find someone else to fill that role. But that's not what happened. Hyron had been Odonathus' son from his first wife, a woman we know basically nothing about. Odonathus had probably been planning for Hyron to assume his role after his death, which still would have caused trouble for Rome. However, Odonathus also had a second wife and more children with her. So, after the Palmyrene king's death, his wife Zenobia decided to step in and really kick things up a notch. Much of Zenobia's life is shrouded in mystery. This is due to both scarce information about her life before her marriage to Odonathus and just ancient historians completely making up information about the Queen of Palmyra. What we know starts when Zenobia was married to Odonathus when she was only 14 years old. Odonathus would have been over double her age when the pair were married in 255 CE. She was possibly even the same age as his son, Hyren. Zenobia was almost certainly of noble birth and may have even been related to her husband, though probably by at least a little bit of distance. Some historical sources list her as joining Odonathus during his campaigns against the Persians, where she would have been used as a boost for morale, but sort of in a way that's like, look, the king brought his family, this is who we're fighting for, and not in any weird meaning of that phrase. If true, this would be very important for her life after Odonathus died in 267 CE. There are theories that Zenobia hired out the hit on her husband, but most historians don't believe those rumors. The reasoning behind these theories is that Zenobia wanted her own children as Odonathus' heirs instead of Hyron, who was from the king's first marriage. However, the main source for this theory, Historia Augusta, is not the most reliable when it comes to the life of Zenobia. The general working theory these days is that Zenobia may have been with Odonathus returning from one of his military campaigns when the king and his son were assassinated. This is believed because it's generally assumed it was a smooth transfer of power from Odonathus to Zenobia. And as we've seen earlier in this episode, military leaders like to make power grabs when the hand of power is far away. 
However, the actual role of ruler of Palmyra would not go to Zenobia but her son, Vibalathus. He was only about 8 years old at the time of his father's death, so Zenobia would instead rule as queen regent. Within a couple years, Zenobia was being referred to as Queen of Palmyra. Then, in 268 CE, Emperor Gallienus was assassinated, so there's not really much to go on with what the recently deceased emperor thought of Zenobia. For all intents and purposes, she was just the ruler of a client state. He had no reason to believe Zenobia would actually start up anything. Well, considering that the Roman Empire was under poor leadership standards, at least in the eyes of Zenobia, but to her credit, it kind of was, this is the crisis of the 3rd century, remember? Well, Zenobia decided it was her duty to restore confidence in the eastern provinces. And in order to fully do that, she would need to start expanding her actual control. In 270, while the new emperor Claudius II was enveloped in a war against the Germanic Goths, Zenobia ordered one of her generals to march into the city of Basra, the capital of the province Arabia Petria. The Palmyrene army was met with resistance from the governor of Roman Arabia, but the Palmyrenes ended up coming out on top. After sacking the city, Zenobia's military soon began taking control of the province as well as the neighboring province of Syria-Palestina. It took much less military coercion for Zenobia to fully bring Roman Syria under her control considering her Syrian heritage. But everything changed dramatically when Zenobia set her eyes further south. If she was going to control the eastern world of Rome, she would need its crown jewel. Zenobia's next plan of action was to conquer Egypt. In October of 270, the Palmyrene army began marching on Egypt. The general in charge, named Zabdas, was said to be in control of 70,000 Palmyrene soldiers. The invasion was mostly successful due to the fact that the Praetorian prefect Probus, the man in control of Egypt, was out on a naval mission against pirates in the Mediterranean Sea. It's also said that the Palmyrenes received aid from Egyptian military leaders who were sympathetic to the cause of the growing Palmyrene powers. The Egyptian population was also not necessarily opposed to a new change in leadership. Why shouldn't the Eastern cultures be ruled by someone who was born and raised in the East? It didn't take much longer for the Palmyrene army to conquer Egypt. Things seemed to turn around briefly when Prefect Probus caught word of the invasion and returned to Egypt he was able to retake the city of Alexandria before being defeated. After he committed suicide, there was no one left in General Zabdas's way. With total victory, Zenobia annexed Egypt into her growing Palmyrene Empire. And what was Rome's response to this? Well, it was complicated. Claudius II had died and his brother Quintilus briefly seized power. He only reigned for a maximum of a few months, some historians even mention as briefly as 17 days, before either being killed or killing himself. His death saw the rise of Claudius II's son, Aurelian. So yeah, Rome was kind of in a rocky place. It was still very much dealing with all the dangers it had already been facing, meaning the Germanic tribes and the whole deal with the Gallic Empire. Rome proper didn't really have the means to lead a military attack on Egypt when it very much needed its forces focused elsewhere. 
and technically Rome still wasn't recognizing Zenobia as a legitimate ruler of an independent nation. As long as they were getting those sweet, sweet Egyptian wheat shipments, Zenobia could say she was Queen of Egypt. And she very much did. Rome started noticing things a bit more when Zenobia ordered that the Palmyrene mints stop putting the emperor's name and regnal year on the coinage. For a while, mostly under Gallienus, Zenobia had ordered that both Gallienus and Vibalithus appeared on Palmyrene coinage. Things got a bit tricky when the coins started recording Vibalithus' regnal years as well, especially when Claudius II took the throne, because showing the regnal years would make it seem that Vibalithus had been in power for a longer period of time. Which, I mean, he had been, but that would also make it seem as if he was a senior ruler, which technically he was not. But still, Rome did not formally react with any sort of military intervention. This gave Zenobia the freedom to order her militaries to march north into modern-day Turkey. Throughout 271, Zabdas campaigned throughout Asia Minor in an attempt to bring the region under Palmyrene control. He pushed his way into Roman Galatia, a province situated in central Turkey, but was unable to gain control of lands any further west. The furthest he was possibly able to go was the city of Ankyra, the historical name from the Turkish capital Ankara. But still, even if Zenobia's favorite general was never able to make it to Byzantium, the original Greek name for Istanbul before it was renamed Constantinople, Zabdas's military victories in 270 and 271 brought Palmyra to the height of its political power. As 271 started coming to a close, it became fully apparent that Zenobia was no longer just a client queen with dreams of grandeur. Monuments to her were inscribed with Greek titles that were traditionally used for the emperor's wife. Other inscriptions referred to there being two Augusti, the plural of Augustus, a formal title of the Roman emperor, those two being Aurelian and Vibalithus. By April of 272, we start to see the royal mints within Palmyrene territory dropping all mention of the emperor in Rome and referring to Vibalithus and Zenobia as Augustus and Augusta. Palmyra was no longer a strange and convoluted mess that acted as the eastern portion of the Roman Empire. It was now the Palmyrene Empire. It had only been a matter of time before Aurelian acknowledged the act of rebellion against his rule and decided to take action. During the winter of 271-272, the emperor had tackled some of the Germanic invasions to the north and was already in Byzantium. In April, he finally crossed the Bosphorus Strait into Asia Minor. He quickly swept into Roman Galatia and recaptured Ancyra. He then continued on to Roman Syria, the seat of Zenobia's power. Around the same time, in May, another military expedition sought to retake Egypt. Looking to keep Syria safe rather than Egypt, Zenobia recalled her soldiers in the south, allowing the Romans to easily retake the province by the end of June. Meanwhile, Aurelian began marching on Antioch, Zenobia's capital city. Outside of the city, he was met by General Zabdas. The Roman army was originally at a disadvantage. The Palmyrenes were said to have a better cavalry, and they were used to the Syrian climate. However, using a false retreat, Aurelian managed to trick the Palmyrene military and won the battle. Zabdas retreated, and he and Zenobia managed to regroup at the city of Emesa, modern-day Homs, Syria. 
the Palmyrene officials still left in the city awaited Aurelian to come in and kill everyone. However, the emperor was lenient. It was due to this act of kindness that most people believe the rest of the Palmyrene populace accepted a peaceful surrender to Rome. Zabdas once more looked to battle Aurelian's army at Emesa. However, it would be the exact same outcome. It seemed as if the Palmyrenes might win, but Rome once more managed to beat them out. Zenobia retreated once more to her former seat of power, the city of Palmyra. Zabdas was captured, put on trial, and executed. When it became obvious that the Romans would not relent until the entirety of Zenobia's empire had been brought back into Roman power, the Empress sought help from her former enemies, the Sassanid Persians. However, before she could make it to Persia, Zenobia and her son were captured by Roman soldiers. The city of Palmyra continued revolting against Roman rule, so Aurelian ordered for the city to be destroyed. And with that, the Palmyrene Empire came to an end. It's unknown what happened to Zenobia and Vibalathus after the pair were captured. It's generally agreed that she was brought back to Rome to be paraded as a prisoner of war during Aurelian's military triumph in 274. In what may be surprising considering she led a massive uprising and severed the Roman Empire, most ancient historians wrote that Zenobia was allowed to live, and Aurelian even gave her a villa in Rome. I'd have to imagine it was basically a house arrest situation though. Her children were also brought to Rome to live with her. From there, Zenobia disappeared into history. We don't even know when she died or where she was buried. In the aftermath of the fall of Palmyra, Aurelian went on a smear campaign, attempting to paint Zenobia as a coward who would rather run away to Persia rather than fight him. This campaign never really took full effect. In fact, it wasn't long before later historians began praising Zenobia as a powerful ruler who stood against the might of Rome. She is obviously most renowned in Syria, where she's taken on a role as a symbol of Syrian nationalism. She was also even featured on one of the Syrian banknotes, which is a bit funny because we have absolutely zero idea of what she looked like. It's believed that Palmyrene statues were never meant to depict what a person looked like, rather what they represented. But even then, no contemporary statues of Zenobia survived. But still, even to this day, she survives as a symbol of feminism in the Middle East. Unfortunately, due to ongoing wars in Syria, many ruins in the city of Palmyra that had stood for centuries have been completely destroyed within the past few years. But I bet you're also still wondering what happened out west with the Gallic Empire. Very quickly after defeating the Palmyrenes, Emperor Aurelian turned his eyes back to the west. In 274, he managed to defeat the current emperor of the Gallic Empire and reclaim the lands that had broken away. Unlike with the Palmyrene Empire, many Gallic Empire officials were allowed to keep their roles, just now once more as members of the Roman Empire. The crisis of the 3rd century would continue on for about another decade until Emperor Diocletian took the throne in 284. After a series of reforms, Rome finally seemed to get back to how it had once been, both the Gallic and Palmyrene empires just speed bumps in the rearview mirror. 
But, funnily enough, Diocletian then decided to break Rome into four parts, each ruled by a different co-emperor. That, however, is possibly a story for a different day. It's just funny that Rome would always be easier to rule, and the people in the empire were much happier, when it was not the biggest empire in the world. But for now, that's it for this week's episode of Royally Screwed. I hope you enjoyed the journey. Be sure to subscribe to the show, tell a friend, and follow the Denim Creek page on Twitter and Instagram for more info about each episode. Next time, we're going from a woman who took over Egypt to one of its most controversial pharaohs. We'll be learning about Akhenaten, the man who tried to do away with Egypt's polytheistic leanings in order to focus on his personal god, the Aten. I hope you'll join me then for another topsy-turvy look into history's most interesting rulers. (laughs) 